Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful that we can come together and study your word. We ask that you will join us and lead out in our study and guide our minds and hearts to draw closer to you and have greater discernment into your eternal truths as we uh, open your word today and pray that you will your blessing upon all those here in attendance, our online audience, our families that can't be with us this this week and friends of yours around the world that are that are loving what you have brought to this earth through Jesus Christ and the final message for this world. We pray your spirit will be poured out upon them, that this message will go forward, hearts and minds will be changed, and you will come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. So we are doing Lesson 11 uh, in the Quarterly Psalms, and the title is Longing for God in Zion is the title of the lesson. And and I do just want to say that I'm looking forward to being there in person next week, second Sabbath of the month, and I will be there in person to teach. And and then after class, we'll get to fellowship together with our potluck. And I look forward to the time together. So hopefully I'll see all you in person next week. To our class today, lesson 11, Sabbath, uh, in the sentence in the first paragraph, it reads the following. These Psalms often praise the merits of the Lord's house, and express a love for the sanctuary that can be found in other psalms as well. And the question is, why does the psalmist love the sanctuary? One of the disciples said to Jesus in Mark 13, 1, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings, looking at the, uh, looking at the temple grounds. Do you think um, that is the, the way the psalmist is referring to the the sanctuary, the magnificence of the gold and silver in the in the tent sanctuary that they had looking forward to Solomon's temple? Or, or, or is he loving something else about the sanctuary? Something else. Yeah, I think so too. Have you ever felt love or appreciation for the Bible? Yes, yes. Was it the leather binding and the onion skin paper that you loved? <laughs> was it was it the words that you loved? Yes. Or, or was it the meaning contained in the words, the truths that led you back to a knowledge of God and a trust relationship with him that revealed reality to you, the nature of the sin problem, God's solution for it? You know, it wasn't, wasn't it these these deep eternal truths, who we are, why we're here, what the sin problem is, God's solution for it, the truth about who he is? Isn't, isn't this what you love about the Bible? Yes. So, so likewise with the sanctuary then. Is the psalmist loving the sanctuary because in it he's finding eternal truths? Mm-hmm. Not through, when we read scripture, we're reading Symbols, alphabet, the alphabet put together to make words that make sentences. Those words are symbols. They're symbolic representations. If you see a T-R-E-E, you are not seeing a tree. You're seeing a symbolic representation of a tree. And, And so the Bible is filled with words that are symbols of ideas that are leading us to truths. And so likewise, the sanctuary symbolism is designed to teach us eternal truths. When we read the letters and words, we're just reading a different, of the Bible, we're just reading a different type of symbol, but it's still designed to teach us truths. And in the sanctuary, it was the symbols of props, costumes, ceremonies, structures, materials, layout, and action. In other words, it was theatrical symbolism. They acted out in theater and symbol the eternal truths. And so... If symbols, metaphors, ceremonies are not pointing us, leading us, connecting us to some reality, some truth, if they're disconnected from truth, from from reality, then they become fantasy. And sadly, there's a lot of things taught in religion, including Christianity and other religions, that are disconnected from objective reality and they become fantasy. Can we still learn lessons from studying the sanctuary system of the Old Testament and its symbols? Yes. Yeah. As long as we have the right lens. Oh, thank you. That's exactly right. See, if we read the symbols, if we, re- if we understand the symbols, I mean, 
you might say if I said, "Hey, here's a here's a an original manuscript Bible," and 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 does the original manuscript Bible contain truth that can bless us? Well, only if you can read Hebrew or Greek. <laughs> I mean, the truth is there, but does it do you any good if you don't know the the language, don't know the symbols? No. No. And so you're right. We have to have some way to interpret and understand the symbols of that theatrical system, lest we misread and misconstrue what is there. And so here is out of the book Christ Object Lesson, the author of that book gives the following key to rightly lensing or interpreting the symbols of the old system. And here's what this author said. The significance of the Jewish economy is not yet fully comprehended. Truths vast and profound are shadowed forth in its rites and symbols. The gospel is the key that unlocks its mysteries. Through a knowledge of the plan of redemption, its truths are open to the understanding far more than we do. It is our privilege to understand these wonderful themes. We are to comprehend the deep things of God. So the gospel is the key And we're going to unpack that idea in a minute. But we will find the gospel most accurately contained in the life of Jesus. Would you agree? He is the the centerpiece of the gospel. How many times do we put Jesus first, understand all that he taught, understand all that he revealed, understand the truths that he brought home, and then go to understand the symbols of the Old Testament? Or how many times do we study the Old Testament, come up with a theory, a system of, of interpretations, and then pigeonhole Jesus to fit that system? Which way do we do it? This author is suggesting we should start with the gospel, which is centered in Jesus. And so the gospel is, you know, it's a word for the good news. And the good news is what? Well, Revelation describes in Revelation 14 an eternal gospel. A gospel or good news that is eternally true. In eternity, past, as well as eternity, future, through all time, past and present, there's a good news that is always true. It's eternally true. And what is the eternal good news? The good news that angels in heaven needed before earth was created and before humankind fell into sin. All too often we hear good news. It's that Jesus died to pay for my sin. But there was eternal good news before Adam was even created. And what's that eternal good news? How would you say it? How would you tell somebody if they said, what's the eternal gospel? God is love. God is love. God is love. Can't argue with that a bit. God is absolutely love, which means that God is not the kind of being or person that Satan says he is. And Satan has said God is arbitrary, severe, unforgiving, the source of inflicted punishments of sin. And Satan advanced this allegation by alleging that God makes up rules like created beings called laws uh, that we make up and uses his power to punish rule breakers rather than the truth that God is the creator. He speaks into existence reality and his laws are the protocols upon which life and reality function. And in Satan's view, because God's laws are just made up rules that require him to punish rule breakers, God becomes the source of inflicted punishment, the source of death, the source of of suffering and pain for sin crimes. And, And God in Satan's view needs something done to him to propitiate his wrath so he won't hurt us. Thus the entire plan of salvation when taught through the penal legal view teaches that we cannot trust God, that God needs something done to him to restrain him from acting out against us. And that's a core lie when we accept this idea that God's law functions like human law. It's not good news at all. And then eternity, we're safe because someone's hiding us and protecting us from God. If he ever finds out the truth, he's going to have to lash out. The eternal good news or gospel is that God is not like Satan alleges that God is love, that, as Isaiah 55 states, God pardons freely without payment, that God is the source of life, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son not and sent the son to the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him, that God is for us, 
that God is the creator and his laws are the laws of life and that transgressing his laws take us out of harmony with life and thus lead to death. And God didn't want to abandon us. So he did all this to win us back and restore us back to life, to health, to unity with him. The key to understanding the gospel, therefore, is correctly understanding and, and correctly understanding the sanctuary system is returning to creator worship. The eternal good news about God by understanding his laws or design laws and rejecting the penal legal lies that have infected Christianity through Rome. As long as we retain the lie in our hearts and minds that God's law functions like human law, then we will misconstrue all the symbolisms of this beautiful system and end up doing just like the Jews, rejecting and crucifying Christ. So consider this quotation out of the book, Prophets and Kings, page 685. While God has desired to teach men that from his own love, comes the gift which reconciles them to himself. The archenemy of mankind has endeavored to represent God as one who delights in their destruction. Now we're going into the symbolism of the sanctuary. Thus the sacrifices and ordinance designed of heaven to reveal divine love have been perverted to serve as means whereby sinners have vainly hoped to propitiate with gifts and good works the wrath of an offended God. This is exactly what the penal legal view has done to Christianity and to the, to the interpretation of all of the Old Testament symbolism. And we have to come back and we want the key is the good news that God is our creator and his laws are design laws and he's for us. He's not against us. And, and sin results in death. God is the source of life that heals us from the sin condition if we trust him. So let's get into some of the details. Uh, Sunday's lesson points out, uh, points our attention to Psalms 84. And let's read some of it from, from the Remedy version. It says, verse, verse one, how I love your sanctuary, your dwelling place, O creator God, my inmost self desperately craves your presence to be in the courts where you dwell. My heart, my body, my entire being cries out for the God of, of life. Why do you think the psalmist craves God's presence? Have you ever craved God's presence? Yeah. Why? Why do we crave God's presence? It's a craving for life itself. A craving for life itself. Have you ever been in a smoke-filled or a pollution-filled environment? Yeah. Did you crave fresh, clean air? <laughs> yes. Well, many years ago, Christy and I traveled to Beijing, China, and the pollution in Beijing was so thick that you could actually see it as a brown fog hanging everywhere. And our eyes were burning and turned red and our throats were getting raw. And we literally pulled our shirts up over our, our nose and mouth to try to filter the air. We craved fresh, clean air. Do you think the psalmist is craving God's presence because he realizes how polluted this world is with fear, selfishness, guilt, shame, cruelty, hate, conflict, bitterness, resentment, sickness, disease, and all types of suffering. And he longs for the peace, joy, love, health, wellness for mind, body, and spirit, the purity of God's presence. This is what I think he's craving. Are you craving it? Are you, are you tired of this whole world of sin? God's presence is always there, but it's the human perspective of not seeing it. We, the human perspective needs something that's visible and tactile just because of how we are now, even though God's presence is and always will be there. So the faithful in Hebrews seem to have this same, and it says in Hebrews eleven sixteen that these faithful were longing for a better country, a heavenly that, that God's presence might be in their heart, but his full presence is veiled on this planet. His life-giving glory isn't shining over the earth. And thus, even though we may experience his presence in our heart, we still live in the atmosphere of wickedness, pain. Doesn't it say in um, about Lot that, that living in Sodom caused him that righteous man to suffer every day. Doesn't the scripture say that? If it wasn't for God's life-giving presence and benevolence, beneficence, we wouldn't be able to survive. That's true. 
but are we still in an atmosphere? In fact, I think in the Desire of Ages and other places, in the way he said that Jesus walked around and he saw such villainy and wickedness that it grieved his heart. Oh, yeah. Do we identify with, are we callous to the pollution in the world around us? I don't mean chemical pollution, I mean sin pollution. Or as we experience God's presence in our heart, are we becoming more sensitive and therefore less satisfied, more dissatisfied with this world and longing for God's life-giving, physical, glorious presence more? Yeah, I'll go with that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, it's like, it's like when you uh, have a study, you go to a church service or whatever, you're really inspired with the love of God. He fills your spirit, you know, your, your Holy Spirit, His Holy Spirit comes and fills you. And then you go back to life as it is usual every day. And then your that craving comes back. You know, you still crave more of God, but this world affects it so much that it kind of, you know, takes some of it away when you're not in His presence or with Him all the time. So if we believe, if, in, if, if we believe that God instead of being the source of love, truth, forgiveness, goodness, mercy, kindness, patience, understanding, redemption, the one who sets us right, fixes what's wrong, purifies us. If instead we view God as a police officer in the sky watching to record every wrong or a judge waiting to add up all the wrongs to inflict the proper amount of pain and suffering that justice requires. If we view God this way, do we long for his presence? Or do we long for a mediator or intercessor to hide us and protect us from him? Well, let's let's not presume that all cops are there to give us tickets. I mean... Yes, that's true in Collegedale, perhaps, but um, (laughs) police and first responders as a whole are there for our benefit. They're there for our good. And same thing with with Christ. Don, 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 you're missing the point. Okay. This is, okay, irrespective of what you're saying on your way home today, if you look in the rearview mirror and see a police officer following you, and then you turn left and that officer turns left, you turn right, that officer turns right. Do you feel a sense of more relaxation, peace, at ease, or do you have a heightened sense of anxiety and fret and worry? It depends. If I have donuts with me, I'm not concerned at all. This is the point. We, we don't experience police officers most of the time uh, following us to give us a greater sense of security unless we have hired them to be our security detail going in like a secret service agent. Most of the time we experience them to find fault with us and to cite us for some wrongdoing. And that is the point of the metaphor. So uh, how do we read the symbolism of the sanctuary? Do we read it through the key of the eternal gospel, the good news about God, or have we been Romanized and we believe God's law functions like human law and believe Jesus' mediatorial work is to do something to God to protect us from him, which is taught in Christianity and in Adventism that Jesus pleads his blood before the Father. That's a Romanization and perversion of the true gospel message. We won't long for God's presence as the psalmist longed for it as long as we believe the lie that God's law functions like human law. Instead, we will long for something to be done to God to adjust his attitude, assuage his wrath, propitiate his anger, uh, hide him with uh, with a robe so he can't see our true condition, erase record books so he won't have to add up punishments. This is the whole corruption of Christianity. People are longing for something to be done to God rather than longing to be in his presence. Continuing on with the psalm, even the sparrow has a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may make may care for her young near, near your altar, O creator and sustainer of all, my king and my God. Oh, what health and happiness for those who live in your house lives of constant love and praise to you. Why do they have happiness and health? 
because they're living in harmony with the laws that the creator has built life and health to operate upon. You can't have health while violating the laws of health. And God doesn't have to send an angel to ruin your health if you violate the laws of health. Conversely, if you have been living unhealthfully and you move towards healthy living, you can't avoid the benefits that come from healthy living. These are design laws, how reality works. That's not just physiological, that's relational. If you have been a grudge holder, a bitter person, somebody who's angry, somebody who's a fault finder, somebody who seeks to, to criticize the shortcomings of others, and you have found through Christ grace to forgive your enemies, uh, to love those who persecute you, you seek to, uh, to be kind to, to others, you don't hold grudges. Uh, if you go down that trail, you will find health for your soul rather than the first trail, which only causes distress, anxiety, stress, worry, conflict. So it's not just physiological laws involved, spiritual laws as well. You can't have health for your mind, your spirit, your soul, if you're breaking God's design laws. Verses five to seven, what health and happiness for those whose strength comes for you, who set their hearts on finding you, as they pass through life's valley of sorrows, you make it a place of renewal with life-giving springs. The rains become refreshing pools. They gain strength from each victory in life until they appear before God in Zion. What's the lesson being described here? Is this magic? Is the psalmist saying, well, you've got to get the right rules from God. And if you get the right rules and you obey the right rules, then God uses divine power to miraculously give you rewards. But if you don't do the right rules, then God uses divine power to give you the proper curses and punishments. That's a lot of assertion. By beholding and living with him, we become changed. I heard both laws. Law of worship, by beholding we become changed, and law of exertion. If you want something to get stronger, you must exercise it, because if you don't use it, you lose it. Both, both are an application here. That's exactly right. By beholding, we are changed. By worshiping the true God, we experience maturity of character, peace with God. We experience resolution of guilt and shame and fear and are infused with love, trust, and admiration for our creator. And as we worship God as creator, as Jesus revealed him to be, this results in calming of our neurobiological fear circuits, our amygdala comms. We have reduced inflammatory cascades in our body. Uh, we gain wisdom into the physical laws of health. We make healthier lifestyle choices. We forgive others rather than hold resentments. We uh, resolve conflicts. We avoid uh, situations that are highly likely to be damaging to us on any level, physical, mental, spiritual, emotional. And thus we experience greater health and greater happiness in life. The trials, difficulties, and heartaches of life that we can't avoid in this world drive us to our knees to deeper, more intimate connection with our creator. We surrender ourselves, trust him with outcomes, and we mature in our spiritual connection with God, thus gaining maturity of character. We rejoice in our trials because they bring character and help us develop and mature. This is not magic. It's not rule-keeping and reward and punishment. It's how reality works, the God of reality. And then 8 to 10, 8 to 10. O Lord, mighty creator God, hear my prayer. Listen to me, O God, who Jacob trusted. Take notice of our shield, the king. Look favorably upon your anointed one. Better is one day spent in the courts where you dwell than a thousand away from you. I would rather stand at the entrance of the house of my God than live in comfort in the tents of the wicked. Why is it better to have one day with the Lord where he dwells than a thousand away from the Lord? Why is it better? Why is it better to be able to stand one day in God's presence than a thousand away from him? To stand in God's presence means we have been restored to harmony with God. We can't truly stand in God's presence, his physical life-giving presence in 
in violation of his principles in rebellion against him. So to stand in his presence means we have been restored to true wellness, to true health, to life. But a thousand years away from God is a thousand years of suffering and sickness and fear and guilt and shame in conflict and fighting to survive, the survival of the fittest threats on all. It's a living hell. Better for one day of true health, happiness, peace, joy in God's presence than a thousand days in hell. Did, did I misread that or is that how is that what it means? If you understand reality. Yeah. Verse 11 and 12. For the Lord God is our life-giving son and our protective shield, providing continual grace to transform us to his glorious ideal. He will withhold nothing that is good from those who choose to live in harmony with his design. O creator God, health, healthy and happy is the person who trusts in you. What do you hear in this in these verses? Where does health and happiness come from? It comes from God and living in harmony with him. That's exactly right. All right, let's go to Monday's lesson. The lesson points our attention to Psalms 122. Uh, let's compare the NIV and the remedy and then consider some of the conclusions from the lesson. This is Psalms 122, 1 through 4, first from the NIV. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. This is a traditional standard rendering. What do you hear? What inspires you in this? This is how you would read it in pretty much every version other than the remedy. Are you inspired by a closely compacted city and knowing that various tribes went up there to praise God? Does that inspire you? It's a closely compacted city where various tribes go to praise the Lord. No, it doesn't inspire. Well, here's how I paraphrase it and see if you think I'm missing it, adding to it, or is this actually what the psalmist is trying to say? I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the Lord's temple. And now we are here, standing at your gates. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem is a city designed as a place of unity and loving fellowship. This is where the people gather, the people who love God, to praise and celebrate the character of God, acting out his plan of healing as given to Israel. Rather than closely compacted city, the message is that God wants us to be closely united in love. As Ephesians say, when we come into the true faith, there is a unity inherent in our faith. Or as Jesus describes, we are to come into oneness, oneness with we, that he prayed that we will be one as the Father and him are one, him and us and us and them and so forth and so on. There's a unity, a tightness, a closeness. Is it physical compactedness that the psalmist is describing? Or is it that... In Jerusalem, we are united as a people again. We come together in the unity of love. Do you think I'm missing it here? Or do you think that's really what, 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 what the message is that we're supposed to understand? It's okay to disagree with me. <laughs> we know. In the, in the NIV, it, it makes it seem like uh, you want to go to the actual place of Jerusalem to experience whatever is there, whatever magical aura may be there in that physical place. But in the remedy, it makes it seem there's a there's a deeper spiritual lesson here that God is trying to teach us through this. That it is the and, and, and that is the point of scripture. Scripture is teaching us the deeper spiritual truths. Jesus himself said the kingdom of heaven is within you. Um, this is where the operation has to take place. Uh, so verse five, uh, there are, this is from the NIV. There are thrones for judge, there the thrones for judgment stand, the thrones of the house of David. What does that inspire you with? <laughs> and I want to be very clear. This is a legitimate linguistic translation. This is not a mistranslation. It is perfectly proper to translate it just like this. It's not the only way to translate it, but it is a perfectly proper way. So there's no mistranslation here. It just it reveals a certain law lens that one goes through, a certain bias one has when one translates. Mm -hmm. Here's how I translated it in the remedy. There the descendants of David set their thrones to govern the people. 
do you get the same meaning out of both of those? The thrones for judgment stand. The thrones for governing. Hmm. Judgment, governing. What law lens do you hear these words through? Judicial judgment is not is only one narrow element in a human government and governing. The judicial arm, not the administrative arm, not the legislative arm, not the social welfare arm. The government has many things to govern the people. Judicial rulings is only a very narrow segment when we put this for about judgment it really restricts the purpose of governing tim i think that both judgment and governing could be neutral positive or negative depending on once again your law lens and so uh when i thought of judgment i thought of um opportunity for those that are oppressed to be able to have uh, maybe a fair uh, judgment or decision made on their behalf. Governing is still very much, you know, legislative almost in nature. Um, or, um, yeah, so it's still very neutral, I think. I think. So, it, again, go ahead. Somebody else had something to say? I think of, I think of judgment as decision making. Uh, for example, Solomon with the two women who brought the one baby. And so he said, well, cut it in half and give it to each person. And the, and the true mother said, no, give it to her. So that's how. Yeah. And so, so, so that judgment is at, both of you are correct. And this is the point. And so thank you for sharing that, that these words have nuance and, and broader meaning than just a judicial Amen. finding of guilt or innocence. That has to do with discernment, coming to conclusions, making judgments about what's right and wrong, which uh, on a personal level, uh, of course, we are making judgments about how we view and understand God, who we believe to be telling the truth, God or Satan. These types of judgments are also involved. And so, yes, this is the point of, of trying to shift it away from simply a word judgment that lends itself towards a judicial understanding, but cert- uh, does have these other meanings as well to governing, and governing is much broader. But, again, as the Jewish legal system was set up by God in uh, through Moses, the entire system was designed for the pardoning and setting free of the sinner, the criminal. There was no governmental prosecutor like we have in our system. There wasn't one. It didn't exist in that system. Whoever had been wronged had to stand in that role. We'll come to that in a moment. Tim? Yes? Thinking about going up to Jerusalem and then the judgment, I I look at it as, you know, Jerusalem is a hospital where we go up to that wonderful physician and all of us there are just praising this physician because we're experiencing healing and the judgment could be he's actually diagnosing a real problem wonderful and that is the di- that is the judgment of of the of the um, design law lens that god is diagnosing accurately what the problem is and he is judging what is the best therapeutic intervention and he uh, brings that to bear to cure the problem that is the the, the true right way to understand god's judgments and so i just so appreciate you saying that and so, so but, sometimes when yeah, we go. have to go to the hospital and keep our appointments, we may have to wait a little bit, you know, the waiting room. And while we're in the waiting room, we get to visiting with some of the other patients, and we just get to admiring this physician. You're exactly right. So, the, but I want to go back to this. The whole system that was set up by God, their judicial governing system, teaches the exact opposite of what is taught in the penal legal substitutionary model. What God set up in the Old Testament was that the entire system was for the pardoning and setting free of the sinner, the criminal. There was no governmental prosecuting attorney who brought charges and prosecuted the one being accused, symbolically teaching that in God's government, he keeps no record of wrongs, just like it says in 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrongs in other places. It is not from God the charges come. 
No one in God's government brings charges against the sinner. Throughout scripture, Satan is represented as the accuser of the brethren, the one who brings the charges. Yet how often is it presented in penal substitutionary theology that God reviews record books, that God determines guilt and innocence, that God decides punishment, that God inflicts punishment, that God needs payment uh, to be made to legally not punish. This is all satanic. It's all false. It contradicts the entire teachings of Scripture, both Old and New Testament. The entire Sanhedrin and high priests were a collection of the most highly trained theologians and lawyers of their entire system. And every single one of them were instructed and assigned the role of defense attorney. Every single one of them was on the side of the accused to find a reason to pardon and set free. That was their purpose. They were never to be looking through the lens of prosecution and punishment. And they all, they represent Jesus, our high priest, and all the saints who are, and we are to be battling on this earth for the salvation of every soul, seeking every means and that we can bring to bear for the, for the redemption of every sinner. But their argument was not to the Sanhedrin. The, the Sanhedrin and high priest did not make an argument to themselves. It was to the accuser, who was uh, the person who was wrong, and they stand in the place of Satan, the accuser. They represent the people who refuse to forgive freely and rec recognize somebody who was wrong, who practices what Jesus did, forgiving those who hurt them, would not be at the Sanhedrin, bringing accusation and wanting to get someone pardoned, they, uh, punished. They would have already pardoned them. So these people bringing the accusation are actually standing in the role of Satan, the accuser of the brethren, with a version of law and justice that Jesus rejected, and, uh, and when Jesus taught us to love our enemies and forgive those who mistreat us. Instead, this is what we see in penal substitution. We see that Jesus forgave his enemies. We see that Stephen forgave his enemies, yet we see the penal substitution teaching that we should prosecute our enemies. We should hold them accountable. We should look forward to the day God stands on the new Jerusalem and all the unrepentant wicked are punished by God, the amount of fire that they deserve and burn the number of days they deserve. This is all satanic. It's a lie. And, and the whole system, both old and new, teach it as a lie. And it all stems out of the belief that God's law functions like human law. Continuing on with the last two verses or last three verses. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May their peace be within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord, our God, I will seek your prosperity. That's NIV. And here's from the remedy. Pray for the success of Jerusalem, for those who love this city, for love this city, be healthy and happy, that there be restoration to godliness within its walls, that trust and friendship may be its fortress. For all my family and friends, I say, may complete healing and restoration occur within you. In harmony with the purpose of God's temple, I will seek your eternal welfare. Can one have peace? True peace while being out of harmony with God and God's designs for life. So real peace comes through restoring sinners back to unity with God, through removing from our hearts and minds our fear, our selfishness, our guilt, shame, bad habits, evil desires. It is only by experiencing the work of the Holy Spirit within us that we can have peace with God. There is no real peace in claiming legal pardon and adjustment of records in heaven while we remain unrighteous in heart and mind. Tim, yeah. uh, can I add something that uh, I've been thinking a lot about lately? In, in Revelation 19, verse 11, it says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a white robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will, he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe uh, is written, and his thigh are written, King of kings and Lord of lords. 
But when you study what a sword is that might be coming out of someone's mouth with which he slays the nations, what is that sword? It's easy to imagine a physical altercation about to happen here. But when you realize that God is talking about the sword of truth, the word of God, that's what slays the nations, not a physical altercation. And I agree with you completely. This looks like Thank you. a whole big judgment, but all it is is saying, I told you the truth, and you believed it, or you didn't. You know, that's, that is the sword with which God fights. But people can misinterpret and this. And, and we have many scriptures to confirm that interpretation of the symbolic language of Revelation. The word of God is a double-edged sword cutting to bone and marrow. Uh, we, though we live in the world, we don't wage wars, the world does. The weapons we use are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. Uh, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So when you put the scripture together, what you're saying is absolutely sensible, and it is the truth that, that destroys lies and cuts through all of the distortions from the father of lies. And well, that's what and ultimately... Jesus said, the father doesn't judge anyone. He gave judgment to me. And in another place, he says, I don't judge anyone. The mo words Moses wrote will be your judge. Of course, he's the one that gave the, the, the uh, words and, Moses wrote, but it's, it all comes down to God is not there to judge you. The word of truth will judge you. And that word of truth is the accurate diagnosis of who you've chosen to be. Jesus also said, by their fruits you shall know them. Um, by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Meaning, um, the condition of your own heart, have you accepted Jesus Christ, surrendered to him, been reborn and renewed within so that you're like Jesus in heart? Or have you rejected the light and hardened yourself in, in selfishness and, and rebellion, and thus you're... you're, you're terminal with sin. I mean, it is what it is. Let him who be is righteous be righteous still. Let him who is wicked be wicked still. That's the reality at the end of time, and that is the judgment of God. It is simply the accurate diagnosis of what is in each individual heart. Or as the, the I guess, parable or description that Jesus gave of the king separating the sheep from the goats, the king, Jesus, separates sheep from goats. But his separation of sheep from goats do not make sheep into sheep and goats into goats. He separates them because of what they actually are. And what determines what they actually are are the choices that they've made. And so it is, again, reality-based. So in the second paragraph in the lesson, it says, Praying for the peace of Jerusalem invokes God's blessing upon the city and its inhabitants, and it unites the worshipers, causing peace to spread among them. And then it goes on to say several other things. But um, does praying for peace... The peace of Jerusalem invokes God's blessing upon the city and its inhabitants. Is that what history reveals? I mean, if this psalm is, is referring to the city in the Middle East named Jerusalem rather than its symbolic significance representing the new Jerusalem, which I think it's likely referring to the Middle East city, um, isn't it um, true that millions of people have prayed through history for the peace of Jerusalem, and today there are still millions praying for peace in Jerusalem. And 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 what does history reveal to us about that city? It's been attacked over and over and over and over again. Yeah. Is there any city with less peace in the world than Jerusalem? <laughs> so why do you think it's this way? I mean, the lesson says praying for the peace of Jerusalem invokes God's blessing upon the city and its inhabitants, and it unites the worshipers, causing peace to spread among them. I'm going to say no. I'm going to call foul on that statement based on history because it is because the people who are praying for peace have rejected the design laws of God and by and therefore are worshiping an imperial dictator imposter whose laws are made up rules that require external enforcement. And this is the God they are praying to. They become like their own false God 
and thus believe it is right and just to make up rules and enforce them on others and use the power of arms to punish rule breakers, and that's justice, and even kill those who don't keep the rules that they believe are the right rules. And they believe that if they don't enforce the right rules as they understand them, then they aren't being obedient to their office. They're being disobedient to their God and their office and their position. And therefore, they have a duty and a responsibility to to enforce the right rules upon the guilty, uh, those guilty of sin. And thus, they are required to use the law and office to promote by power what they believe is right. And they believe this land was given to certain ones, but others believe the land was given to them and certain ones. And and God told them to do thus and so, and the other one told them to do thus and so. And and you are a rebel, and no, you're an infidel. No, you're a heretic, and no, you're a a heretic, and and on and goes back and forth. I think it all boils down to just people not allowing the Spirit of God to work in their hearts, to transform the heart and mind and soul into his design protocols of life and health and happiness for eternity, we try to... And why is that? Why is that they don't allow them in their heart? Because they don't worship a God who requires. They worship a God who requires performance, requires payment, requires rule-keeping. So praying for peace of Jerusalem doesn't bring God's blessing when the people are praying to a false god who looks like Satan in character. Instead, they become like the false god and perpetrate all types of crimes in the name of doing justice and rush home to keep the Sabbath or whatever other holy day in the name of their god. Just like those who got Jesus off the cross and rushed home to keep the Sabbath so they could be holy. Or those who burned heretics in the dark ages or went off to the Crusades with a cross emblazoned on their tunics, and on and on it goes. Can God bring peace? Think this through. Can God, the true God, the God of heaven, bring peace through imposing made-up laws upon people and then using might and power to punish people who break his rules and refuse to love him? Can he bring peace by doing that? No. No. He brings rebellion. In, exactly. In fact, it brings rebellion. It's the exact opposite of peace, yet that's exactly what penal substitution theology teaches God is going to do in the end. And that's why there's no peace, and that's why the gospel has not lightened the world, and that's why Christ has not come, because we are not actually taking the true eternal gospel about God to the world. God brings peace by removing the cause of division, by removing sin fear, and selfishness from the hearts and minds of people. God brings peace by love casting out fear, truth eradicating lies, grace purging guilt and shame, mercy, kindness, and forgiveness, cleansing hearts from cruelty, bitterness, and a desire for revenge, by eliminating prejudice with fellowship, by turning enemies into friends. This is how God brings peace. And you can never do that with external rules and threats of punishment. And Tim, the statement also mixes the symbol with with a literal concept of praying for the city of Jerusalem. Like I would, I would imply that praying for Jerusalem is truly praying for the people of God to be united and to be focused on Him and learning of Him. Yeah, I like that. I agree with that. Yeah, mm-hmm. because Jer- Jerusalem symbolizes not a local regional area, but the people who are coming to God for healing and salvation. So I would agree with that. And that's why I said earlier, when we pray for Jerusalem, are we really praying for a, and that, that drawing that question? What we're building with common reason is a spiritual community based on another paradigm than, you know, the, the imposed law paradigm. Um, when, when our church, when the Seventh-day Adventist church first got started, it was because of the prophecies. And so there was so much emphasis on the prophecies to other church people, other, other you know, congregations in the areas that they were preaching, that they, finally, they were finally met with the, the statement, why don't you just talk about the love of Jesus? Why don't you just talk about the love of God? And so, <laughs> it's funny that, you know, in a, in a way, our church has gone full circle to the point where most people think they just want to talk about the love of God to make a spiritual community, but prophecy 
all through the book of Isaiah, Daniel, Revelation, has been central to confirming the Word of God as far as where we are headed spiritually. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about understanding that God is a loving God in all circumstances uh, and not a, a, a judging, hating, uh, a hateful God. So what you bring up there, uh, Ken, is a historic tension between those who are preaching the law right. and therefore uh, obedience yeah. to the law and those who are preaching love and grace and therefore we can we don't have to worry about being particular because God loves us and we just trust him and if he loves us then it really doesn't really matter too much how we live uh, or which laws we keep and which rules we obey this is the historic tension the problem is that that historic tension only exists when you approach it through Romanism when you approach it through God's law functioning like human law that God loves us too much to punish us, or Jesus took the punishment and his grace covers us, and we live under grace now, not law. This tension is only there is when you're trying to dis describe love and law under the Romans' idea of law, human law, imposed law. As soon as you get back to design law, when you love somebody, you want them to be healthy, and health requires harmony with the protocols of life itself. And so there is no tension at all between God's love and our engagement in trust that leads to a life of obedience which is living in harmony with the laws of health or the laws that life are built upon there's no tension there whatsoever and, and yet this historic tension has always been there because both sides have been arguing based on a false law premise and this is why the final message of mercy to light in the world that takes and resets everything in its proper setting is the message of the three angels to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in the is, which calls us back to creator worship. And, and, and it's time to give him glory for the hour of his judgment has come, the hour for us to stop judging him to be an imperial Roman dictator who makes up rules and requires a payment not to kill us, to start seeing him as the creator, the one who built reality, the one who's who sustains all reality and only in harmony with him do we find our, 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 our life and our thriving and our purpose. So this is the real message. And, and when it goes out, and I can tell you, I'm sharing this message outside of Adventist circles, and it is resonating. Hearts and minds are responding. People are embracing. Conversions are happening. Baptisms are occurring. I mean, this is an exciting thing to see. And there is none of this pushback. It's very much like when Jesus spoke to the Samaritans 2,000 years ago. They wanted him. They begged him to stay longer. They loved this message. But when he spoke to the Jews, they constantly tried to stone him. And within Adventism, you get the greatest resistance to this message because we have the law, we have the rule, we have the Sabbath, all those other non-Sabbath keepers, they're lawbreakers, and you're not going to try and tell us that they can have just as equal much grace if they don't come to keep the system of rules that we have uh, have been doing since we've come along. We're the right ones, they're not. Just like the Jews 2,000 years ago, and it's all because they have a romanization of these doctrines. There's nothing wrong with the individual doctrines any more than the doctrines the Jews had, but once you put it in the human law model, you corrupt the entire thing because you end up with the wrong God and you end up with the wrong consequences. So you have to take those doctrines and set them back in the design law setting of our creator and then they all have beauty and life transforming power. Yeah. I didn't mean to go off on a little diatribe there. And this is eternal life. This is eternal life that you know God. It's not this is eternal life that you are exactly right in every everything you think, uh, you know, you way you live, but this is eternal life that you know God and Jesus Christ to be said. So well, you have to know the truth about God. Tim, I also wanted to emphasize that what your little rant there, if you will, emphasizes that what we want to do is break out of our complacency. And, and so in a sense, historically, when Adventism was getting started, we were trying to break people out of a complacency that existed with people only wanting to talk about the love of God, not all these prophecies that are so hard to understand or, you know, all the pieces can't be right or whatever. But in, in, our, in our setting, what we're coming up against, I believe, is the idea that people have come to the point that they think what we have is good enough. Can't you just be satisfied with a community that that exists as a as a serving quote unquote serving community why do you always have to be pushing something that you know
people can't quite get there or something because they're satisfied with what they already have. And that's so to me that's that's the great logjam, if you will, that we have in Christianity, that people just are are too satisfied with with uh, their institutional ways. They just don't know the beauty of the gospel. And that's the trap. This is what this is the what what the devil does. He traps people into philosophies, ways of thinking that give a sense of security without and this is what Paul said to Timothy that at the end of time, there'll be all this horrible stuff happening, lovers of themselves, abusive, proud, arrogant, murderers, all this stuff, having a form of godliness, but with no power. So there is a form of religious godliness that gives a sense of security, but it actually doesn't heal the heart and mind. I deal with this when I talk about, I have a lecture I give on, on guilt and guilt resolution. Guilt, appropriate guilt, the, the guilt we feel when we've actually done wrong, is designed by God to alert us that we're damaging our soul. Guilt functions in the same way pain does to the body. If you feel pain, it alerts you to stop doing something damaging and and heal the problem. And guilt is to alert us we're damaging our soul, to pull back and address it and and find healing for our soul. Uh, We don't like the feeling of guilt. There's only two ways to resolve appropriate guilt. There's an inappropriate form we won't go into. Uh, Appropriate guilt is resolved by repentance, a change of heart and restoration. We are set right with God again. We're reborn in the inner person. It's no longer I that live, but Christ within me. And the guilt goes away because we've been changed. We've been healed. But, But there's another way to avoid the feeling of guilt that is not healthy, and that's through denial and distortion. It wasn't me. It was the woman you gave me. Uh, we make up some a mechanism and uh, that, that avoids the truth of our circumstance. And so I use this metaphor. Have you ever heard people saying, well, he's bending the truth. He's twisting the truth. Have you ever heard that statement? Well, get, well truth cannot be bent and truth cannot be twisted. We can only bend our minds around the truth. And so imagine a telephone pole that's perfectly straight and we hold a lens up between you and the pole. And and as you look at the pole through the lens, the pole nail appears bent. Have we bent the pole? No, No, the pole is still straight. We've only bent our view of the pole. Okay. And people who will not accept their own shortcomings, their own sin in their life, go to Jesus Christ for renewal, will deny and distort. And thus, it's like putting a lens over their mind that bends their understanding of reality. Reality hasn't changed. Their understanding has changed. And so Satan, the the god of this age, has all these philosophies that people can take into their mind that bends their mind around objective reality to create fantasy, false narratives, uh, stories that they can tell themselves that can allow themselves to feel good while they continue to have just as much corruption operating in their heart and mind. Stories that say things like sin is a legal problem that's recorded in record books way out there past Orion. And salvation is me claiming a legal substitute who gets punished in my place and then goes off to this far place in Orion and presents Presents his blood payment to the ruling magistrate who will make an adjustment in the legal registry way off there. And I get a legal declaration. I'm now righteous, even though I'm not. I can believe and feel all good about my salvation because I have this fantasy philosophy covering my mind that gives me false security. I have bent and twisted my mind around reality because sin does not happen in record books. Sin happens in hearts and minds of intelligent people. And God's plan of salvation is not to write his law in parchments or paper in heaven. It is to write his law in our hearts and minds to restore us to actual rights, righteousness, and thus true substitutionary atonement. Second Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Not that we might be declared in some legal adjustment system to be righteous while we remain unrighteous. That's a fantasy, a fraud, a lie that 
billions of Christians have accepted that keeps them in a false narrative of fake peace while they continue to get sick of heart. And it is the final message of mercy that has been given to us as a people that are to call people out of this corrupt, fallen, penal, legal Babylonian system. Remember Babylon, the first nation to have a uh, legal code, the Code of Hammurabi, a system of rules enforced by punishments, this false, penal, legal, human law system of theology that's corrupt. We are called out of it, back to worship our creator God, whose laws are design laws. That is the call. Stop worshiping God as a dictator. Worship him as creator, because that whole system is corrupt and fallen. And that is our message to the world. And we are fighting these theologians and leaders in our own system, just as Jesus was 2,000 years ago, who are who have their minds bent by this false penal legal theological construct, and they and Jesus called them blind guides because they don't see objective reality. They see the world through these virtual reality goggles of a Romanization and imperial law system, and we must take those off and get the ISAV of the Holy Spirit that Jesus said the church of Laodicea needs so we can see reality as it really is. Amen. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are the God of reality, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, and that you stepped into our sin, sin condition, took it upon yourself to overcome and eradicate and to provide true remedy for our hearts and minds. We ask through your spirit of truth now to come and anoint our eyes, our minds, to give us wisdom and discernment to see past this miasma, this, this virtual reality corruption of human law systems that have taken hold of so many and to restore in us your, your law and right spirit, to recreate in us your image, that we can go forward at this time in history, effective agents, to advance the truth of you, our creator God, that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.